Hello there, welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the Law and Politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald. I'm a former director of public prosecutions and a barrister practising at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen. I'm also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law and human rights law. This week, we're joined by a third barrister from Matrix Chambers, our esteemed colleague, Karen Moynihan, KC. Tim and I are delighted to be joined by, by Karen. Karen came to the bar, um, I think, in uh, 1989. Is that right, Karen? That's right, yeah. She is one of the country's um, leading employment equality and discrimination law uh, silk. She took silk in 2008. She is described variously um, in in the uh, directories, in particular uh, chambers and partners, as phenomenal, a force of nature, and the ultimate equality and discrimination expert at the bar. So Tim and I um, have have been interested for some time in the issues of uh, gender, uh, sex, transgender rights, women's rights, and all of the debates and controversies around these issues. And one of our earliest guests, actually our second guest, was the wonderful Professor Kathleen Stock, who I know um, Karen knows well. And, and so uh, Karen has, has joined us today to talk about her, her practice and herself and her route to the bar, which was not entirely a traditional route, but also to discuss some of these issues, which I know are of great interest to many uh, of our listeners. So, Karen, welcome to Double Jeopardy. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to come. It's a pleasure. So, Karen, I, I mentioned um, your, your route into the bar, which was quite unusual. I mean, m- most people go off to university, do law degrees or, 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 or similar degrees, and then become, you know, thrusting, ambitious young barristers at an early age. You, you, you had a much more interesting route. Can you just set, tell us a little bit about your, your background, what interested you in the law and how you came to the bar? I think I was young and thrusting at one point, though, Ken. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure yeah. you were. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but I, mine was a bit of an atypical route, I suppose. I left school at 16. I had my daughter when I was still in my teens. And then in my very early 20s, I joined what was described as a return to study course for people who wanted to re-enter education. And it taught basic skills like essay writing, research skills, and so on. And it happened to be that at the college I was studying at, they did a law degree. It was one of the old HE or FE colleges, I don't know which one. They had a law degree programme, and they allocated a small number of places to people without formal qualifications. It might have been a pilot scheme, I can't remember. But I, through that route, got onto a law degree. I can't even remember the process, but I assume that I got some form of a reference from the course I was on and I was interviewed. I certainly remember that. And perhaps I needed to do a written assessment. I don't know. But in any event, I got onto the law degree through that route. So extremely lucky. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Kai. It sounds from what you were saying that they just happened to be offering a law degree at this place that you were studying at. So you thought, I'll do that. I mean, incredibly lucky, because as it happens, it suits me. Yeah. It's a job that I've got a lot of pleasure from. Um, so, yeah, and of course, in those days, as you'll remember, um, there was no such thing as student fees. I'm sure if somebody mentioned yeah, yeah. student fees, we wouldn't know what they were even you know conceptualize it so I got a grant I got a very generous uh, scholarship from the Inns of Court in fact I think I was interviewed by Lord Bingham Lord Justice Bingham at that point uh, for the scholarship lucky you yeah um and pupilage in the ordinary way took a couple of years out to work at a law center 
And then really my career otherwise has been pretty conventional. So chambers, ultimately matrix chambers. So you, you worked at the Brent Law Centre, which was a very well-known place. And we, we, we used to, I used to do work for them in the, in the criminals field. And they, they were quite... They were quite kind of politically motivated, weren't they, those, yeah. those law centres? They had a real mission to bring the benefits of law and legal representation to people who hadn't traditionally been able to afford representation. Absolutely. I mean, it was a, a real lefty institution, and many of them were yeah. um, in those days. So we did a lot of work with trade unions, community organisations, as well as individuals who, who needed legal representation, yeah. And was there was there ever a plan B? I mean, did you, you've described how you did the law degree, um, but had you ever thought of another another career that you, other than being a lawyer? No, I mean, you know, it was uh, no. I mean, I, I had not. I was, you know, hadn't. I was still very young, um, and it just happened yeah. to me yeah, yeah. that these opportunities opened up for me. Um, and no, I certainly mm. didn't have. I hadn't given any thought to to what I might do by way of a job, never mind a career. <laughs> but you did pupillage with an eight-year-old daughter, I think. That must have been quite challenging. Well, I did pupillage with Lord Hendy, but uh, <laughs> I did. You had an, you had an eight-year-old daughter. Very, very funny, Kate. <laughs> I had an eight-year-old daughter. <laughs> okay. But, but why, so yeah. why, 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 why employment in discrimination law? What, what, what brought you into this field? Um, I suppose a commitment generally to social justice, um, employment obviously is a site of a considerable degree of inequality and discrimination. So there was a natural fit. Uh, Brent Law, a Brent Law Centre, there was a lot of working with local trade unions and workers' organisations. So again, that was sort of a natural fit with my broader interests. And so I got into it through that route. So I mean, I've got a much broader practice now, as we often do in Silk. Uh, but that was certainly where my focus was in the early years. I wonder, I mean, what I thought we might get onto relatively early in our conversation is the the recent Scottish gender self-ID legislation, partly because it's 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 really in the news a lot at the moment. It's obviously a, a matter of great interest to lawyers and, 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 and partly because you're something of an expert on the legislation. Indeed, I think you gave evidence to a, a committee of the Scottish Parliament about this legislation, Karen. So can I ask you just to, for our listeners, those who may not know exactly what's been going on in in Holyrood um, in connection with this legislation. Could you just describe what it is, what it seeks to achieve, and then perhaps we'll come on to some of the problems that you may perceive with it. Yeah. So the um, Scottish bill, if it's enacted, which seems less likely now than it did pre Nicola Sturgeon's re resignation, um, proposes to amend the Gender Recognition Act 2004. That's an act which allows for the grant of a gender recognition certificate. A gender recognition certificate allows a trans person to acquire the legal sex identified on the gender recognition certificate. The case of a trans woman, if she successfully um, applies for a gender recognition certificate, that will be a woman and conversely a man in the case of a trans man. So it's an important document because it changes your legal sex for all purposes, save uh, some exceptions that we needn't be bothered with at the moment. There's a rigorous process uh, that one has to go through uh, to, to obtain a gender recognition certificate. You have to have two doctors confirm that you have gender dysphoria, 
one of those doctors must be a specialist in the area of gender dysphoria. You have to be able to prove that you've lived in the sex to which you be, wish to be reassigned for a period of two years. The evidence needs to go before a panel, an independent panel, that makes an objective assessment of the extent to which you meet the conditions. And uh, just because we'll come on to what the Scottish Bill says, you must be at least age 18. The uh, Scottish Bill proposes to amend the, uh, those provisions for the purposes of Scotland. So allow, in the case of a person who's 18 or above, uh, to uh, allow them to apply for and be granted a gender recognition certificate on the basis that they have lived in the sex to which they wish to reassign for a period of three months and they have signed a statutory declaration stating that they intend to live in that sex for the rest of their lives. In the case of a child, that is a person aged 16 to 18, the same test, save that they must show they've lived in the sex to which they wish to be reassigned for a period of six months, and they must uh, be able to establish that they have spoken to an adult about their intention, and that adult is a person who knows them and is used to giving advice, guidance and support. Doesn't need to be a parent or indeed a relative at all. So it's a system of self-ID as we, as we know it. That is, one can declare oneself to be a member of the opposite sex without the need for any threshold, gateway, objective assessments. Um, the intention is plainly that it will make it easier for trans people to obtain a gender recognition certificate. And it's well understood, and indeed intended, that a larger number of people will be able to secure a gender recognition certificate with the effect that they can be treated for all purposes as a member of the sex to which they've reassigned. So very low threshold, redu reduction in the age level, um, and no, no medical diagnosis required. I mean, given the way you describe it, Karen, it, it, it seems to result in a situation in which anyone who wants to obtain one of these certificates will be able to obtain one. And that, that is, is no doubt a good thing if, if people are, are genuinely wanting to transition. But, but one of the issues that which all this raises, given its ease, is the, the, the thought that it's, it's not just the rights of the people who are applying for the certificates that are in play here. Other people's rights are in play too, because the act of transitioning has an impact, doesn't it, on some sex-based women's rights, potentially. Yes. And that's, that's quite, that, so that's quite a significant issue. So it's not just the rights of trans people who are in play here, it's also the rights of women. That's right. And, and um, before, before you answer that, Karen, perhaps just put on record that, of course, as is well known, the, uh, the government, the Secretary of State for Scotland, has used Section 35 of the Scotland Act in effect to veto this piece of legislation. And Section 35 enables the government, the United Kingdom government, effectively to prevent royal assent being given to the bill. And the reasons that were given for it are that the bill would remove, the Scottish bill would remove a number of measures which the UK government regards as important safeguards, including third party verification and evidence that applicants meet the criteria to receive a gender recognition certificate. 
um, both of which, according to the government, may result in an increased risk of fraudulent applications from, quote, malicious actors. They also say to the government that the bill is constitutionally incompatible with the UK Equality Act 2010 in regards to how unlawful discrimination on the grounds of sex is defined, and perhaps you can develop that, and says the bill would have a number of specific adverse effects on the operation of the Equality Act 2010, including single-sex clubs and associations, differing applications of the public sector equality duty across devolved nations, and use of the comparator test in equal pay claims, and effectively say would have practical and unmanageable consequences on the operation of the law in relation to a number of other matters. Now, What's your view about that statement of reasons given by the Secretary of State? Can I just take one step back and say, I think we need to sort of remind ourselves how remarkable it is that this Section 35 order has been made at all. It's the first time ever under the Scotland Act that an order like this has been made, that the UK government has vetoed a Scottish bill. But yes, I do agree with the reasons. Uh, and I wonder if I should just take them one by one, really picking up um, on the points that have already been made. The bill, if enacted, would provide very many benefits for trans people. It would make it much easier. It would remove the need for great bureaucratic processes and medical diagnoses. But as you've said, there are other interests in play and in particular the interests of women or females, if we're to to make a distinction between the two classes. At the moment, under the Equality Act, sex is defined by reference to biology. So sex is being a man or a woman. Being a man or a woman under the Equality Act, in terms, is being male or female. That is biologically male or female. This means if you've got a single-sex service, you're a women's-only service, changing room, dormitory, rape crisis centre, whatever, a person who turns up um, and is male as a matter of law, whether, they're, uh, whether they self-identify as trans or not, can be simply turned away because they're not women in law. Um, once you have a gender recognition certificate, the starting point is that you have the right to access a single sex service in the sex to which you've been reassigned. So a trans woman with a gender recognition certificate's starting point is that she has access. Now, of course, the threshold for determining that question is very low under the bill. There is an exception. You can, a single sex service can exclude a trans person with a gender recognition certificate, but only where justification could be established. So there's a different starting point and very real concerns about that. There are other problems. I can I can carry on. For example, the comparator point that the statement of reasons gives. If you're if you've got an equal pay case, you are required to identify a man that's being, in the case of a woman, that's being paid more than you. And obviously, if your man is a trans woman and obtains a GRC, then you've lost your male comparator. Now that doesn't matter when there's only a tiny number of people with a GRC. But once the number of people with GRCs increases, then the possibility of those rights being intruded upon become greater. But there are other things like positive discrimination, you know, women-only shortlists, for example. Karen, you've, you've worked around these issues for, for, for many, many years, and I know, I know you've, you've, you've been involved in, in feminist movements um, and you've thought deeply about, about these issues. I mean, what's going on here? How, how have we got ourselves into a position where 
the rights of women, the position that women find themselves in are being so casually disregarded in much of this debate? I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Honestly, it's something that, you know, is, many people engage in. There just seems to have been a, a sort of shift that's acquired a momentum that's developed over probably, I don't know, perhaps even only the far past five years. Um, this wasn't really at the top of my agenda 10 years ago. You know, something I wrote about marginally, but, you know, it really wasn't a big deal. Um, but it's this sudden momentum developed uh, at, with an increased call for greater rights for trans people and the sort of insistent mantra, trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women are women. And that, therefore, if anybody says, well, hold on a minute, let's just have a look at the rights of women, females, as I draw the distinction, um, that's stigmatised as transphobic. And we get that, if I may say so, we get that sort of narrative coming from Stonewall. Take a, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that Matrix is a member of the Stonewall Champions Scheme. So, you know, I say that in the interest of transparency um, to, and to avoid a Twitter onslaught. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I am conscious of that. I have, I have to say, some discomfort about that, but we... We're a democratic organisation, and that's a very good thing. Um, but Stonewall, for example, have been a leader in that sort of campaign, um, as have the Greens. And in Scotland, the, the most significant impetus behind the bill was, in fact, the Greens and the deal done between the Greens and the SNP to get a, a working majority for the SNP. Um, but, but more generally, it's just developed this momentum and there are various organisations, including Stonewall, pushing this agenda. You know, Stonewall promoting this narrative um, that trans women are women for all purposes and that the expression of any concern about the impact that may have on women, females, has become stigmatised as transphobic. And I think that's really important. Firstly, it demonstrates a real polarising of the discourse, which means that any nuance, any sensitive discussion about how these issues or differing interests might be resolved has become really tricky. Uh, uh, and I think that's really unfortunate. Um, but there we are. I mean, the, the, that point that you're making about, about intolerance, um, is, isn't the difficulty this, that... If you don't accept the concept of biological sex, then you won't be able to accept arguments based on the Equality Act 2010 and, and as, a view, as you've said, the way in which sex is defined in that act. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, I, I hate to talk about Stonewall too much, but I mean, Stonewall will say gender identity, how you feel about your gender... Uh, trumps anything else. And therefore, whatever your status, whether you've got a GRC or not, you ought to be able to access women's only spaces as a trans woman. They're wrong about that in law. But it's also very problematic because it elevates this idea of gender above biological sex, which is sort of denigrated to some incidental, unimportant characteristic. That's not the way the Equality Act manages trans rights and sex-based rights. Uh, but there is that, that conflict in approach. Kath Kathleen Stock um, skewers all of this really effectively in her book, Material Girl. 
she takes on all of this and I'd, I'd, as we recommend it to it to our listeners at the time she appeared on the broadcast I, I certainly recommend it again but, but I mean one of the troubling things I agree with everything you said about Stonewall incidentally Karen and I'm also uncomfortable that that we're part of the Stonewall's champion scheme more than uncomfortable actually and I think one of the I mean, several issues uh, one was the persistent refusal of Stonewall ever to be prepared to debate any of this and even to share a platform with people who express the sort of views that you're expressing. But I, I think one of the most troubling things about this whole debate has been the tendency on the other side for the other side to slip into a, a really unpleasant misogyny, um, which is apparent in some of the language used, it's apparent in some of the arguments, and, and it seems to come to the surface pretty quickly, doesn't it? This, this misogynistic approach to debate, this misogynistic approach to women who may uh, hold a different view, the idea that they're somehow bigots. Um, I mean, ghastly, ghastly concepts like the cotton ceiling, and, and they, these are profoundly misogynistic, it seems to me. Profoundly misogynistic, and attacks on Twitter really demonstrate that. I mean, women are really targeted for abuse. And the idea that efforts made by women to preserve spaces for themselves and secure rights, you know, over decades, is sort of swept aside as irrelevant, unimportant. Being female is unimportant when one measures it against gender. It's unimportant. And those who express views about it are bigots, as you say. And there are concerns from many lesbians, perhaps most lesbians, about this idea, this insistence uh, by some trans women, and by no means all trans women, by no means all, and I'm sure a minority, but nevertheless, some trans women who identify as lesbians and who stigmatise female lesbians as transphobic for not wanting to have intimate sexual relationships with them. Hate to say it again, Chief Executive of Stonewall. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that's deeply problematic and deeply misogynist and deeply homophobic. I mean, if you say to a lesbian, why won't you have sex with a trans woman or why won't you have an intimate relationship with a trans woman? Well, I suspect the answer will be because I'm a lesbian. Yeah, and, and to be clear, Karen, we're talking here about trans women with penises. We're talking about well, we're talking about male-bodied people. Exactly. I would say exactly. Um, but but we, but by and but we but most particularly if you have a penis. Um, but we're talking about male-bodied people. But yes, most particularly if you've got a penis. And as I say, I don't want to get drawn into this discussion about uh, trans people being bullies, bullies, and trans people being obsessed with lesbians and misogynist. That's not true. Um, we are we're talking in a sort of little group you know where voices become very dominant and where organizations that really ought to be you know bringing down the temperature are not doing so they're inflaming things um, but certainly there is a real degree of misogyny homophobia associate and bigotry frankly associated with uh, some of the discussions around this Karen, you mentioned earlier how the, uh, how this question of trans rights has emerged you know, relatively quickly, uh, and that when the Gender Recognition Act in two thousand and four was was passed, it was perhaps anticipating a very small number of people who would who would be affected by it, who would be able to benefit from it. The two thousand and ten Act 
uh, has gender gender assignment as a protected characteristic, so it, it extends the protections of the law to um, persons in a very broadly defined way who have assigned their genders. But when you gave evidence last year to the Scottish uh, Committee, another uh, witness was Professor Sharon Cowan. She's Professor of Feminist and Queer Legal Studies at the Edinburgh School of Law. She made the point that the 2004 Gender Recognition Act is based on an outdated reliance on gender dysphoria. She suggested that the Scottish Bill reflected international human rights standards and good practice. She said Scotland lags behind other jurisdictions. And she cited Argentina, Denmark, Malta, Norway, Ireland, Belgium, Colombia, Brazil, Portugal, Luxembourg, and Pakistan as countries which, as I understood her, she was saying, you know, proceed on the basis of self-identification. And I looked up Pakistan. I wasn't quite aware. I was quite surprised that Pakistan was included. And in fact, they passed in 2018, the Pakistan Parliament passed the Transgender Persons Protection of Rights Act, which in Section 3 allows self-identification so that a transgender person has the right to determine their own self-perceived gender. And of course, it's slight problem is also Article 377 of the Pakistan Penal Code prohibits homosexual acts, deeming them unnatural offences. And so there's a, a slight uh, tension, to say the least, there. But but I suppose the point I'm making is that what, what Professor Cowan was saying is that there are many, many other countries, including a conservative country such as Pakistan, which have proceeded with self-identification without apparently the roof falling in. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that Pakistan makes it easier to change sex than have sex with a person of the same sex. I think Iran is the same. Um, I mean, one could have a great long exploration of why that is um, and what that might mean for people who want to have sexual relationships with same-sex partners and whether actually changing legal sex might be one way of doing that without being killed. Uh, but in any event, uh, she, she says that, uh, and I've, I mean, she's a very reputable scholar, and as it happens, somebody I like very much. Um, and she says there haven't been great problems. There are various reports that suggest actually it's not quite as easy as that. There have been problems in some jurisdictions. But also, that is still a relatively small number of states. Um, you know, there's still a minority. And there are indications that there have been problems, in particular by predatory men uh, relying on the uh, arrangements. Uh, uh, so, and I, I don't accept, actually, that the international legal framework, human rights framework, requires self-ID. I'm certainly, certainly sure that's not right, and certainly the European Court of Human Rights doesn't. The European Court of Human Rights requires a framework for recognising a change in sex, but in all the cases it's considered... They have involved post-op transsexuals in the language of the court. So a very narrow cohort. Uh, and they've not been asked to explore the question of self-ID. I would be surprised if they go so far as to say self-ID is required under Article 8 to Article 14. And certainly there's no, there's no compelling case that international law requires it, so far as I'm concerned. I think the reason that you see in, 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 in some religiously conservative countries that it's easier to 
uh, in inverted commas, change sex, uh, that to have sex with someone of your own sex is probably rampant homophobia. And uh, I think that there, there are historical, there's some historical examples of societies where um, living as, as another sex is more acceptable than having sex with someone uh, of your own sex. I don't think that's particularly strange. But it, and it may have been these other countries which have gone down this route that, that women's sex-based rights are simply being compromised. Um, and that's something which legislators have decided to tolerate in order to give trans people the rights which they, the full rights which they think trans people should have. I mean, that's an obvious possibility, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, Pakistan might not be the place where they're, you know, overflowing with feminists in their legislature. Who knows? <laughs> Just going back to the, the evidence session last year that, that you attended, you expressed a number of concerns, but one of the central ones in terms of what the Scottish bill was proposing was the absence of what I think you used the term um, gatekeeping. In other words, and I think what you meant by that, there was no objective institutional means whereby a person's um, wish to uh, uh, secure a gender recognition certificate was going to be monitored. Is that right? Can you say a bit more about that? Yes. Well, as I uh, mentioned earlier on, the present scheme has a panel, an independent panel established under the Gender Recognition Act, and that panel determines applications. Um, and it requires that there be objective evidence from a clinician identifying gender dysphoria. There are problems with the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. It is controversial, but it's probably the best we have at the moment until somebody can think of a better threshold. Uh, so you need um, uh, two clinicians. You need the evidence as to living in uh, as a person of the opposite sex and so on. And it goes before a panel. In fact, the panel can sit formally and hear evidence from the applicant themselves, although it's generally done on paper these days. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a quasi-judicial panel. And uh, uh, that's, well, in a system of self-ID, plainly it's, it's not there. I think the argument about the current system is that it's it's humiliating, it's distressing to have to go in front of a panel. And I, know, I think the hearings are in private. But nonetheless, they they very rarely they very rarely sit, but it's mainly done on paper. They do sit occasionally. But I understand that argument. I really do understand it. it I mean, some trans women, uh, one trans woman I was speaking to, she will not apply for a gender recognition certificate because she says, you know, I, I feel it's deeply undermining of my dignity to require myself to require me to be subject to some medical uh, examination as though I, there's something wrong with me and then have to meet all these conditions. I absolutely see that. But I think on the other side of that debate, we have to recognize that if a gender recognition certificate is to afford the rights that trans people seek, that is recognition in legal terms as a person of the opposite sex, then we have to have a process for managing that. So I, it's not that I am not um, empathetic to that, but we can't have it both ways. We either have a legal change in sex with rigorous safeguards or we have a change in sex without any associated legal rights. It seems to me we have to manage that balance some way. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? Because because 
changing changing sex in this way is not a neutral act. It's an act which doesn't just impact on you; it impacts upon other people, as we've as we've already agreed, and on other people's rights. And so there has to be, it seems to me, some element of rigor. I mean, I'm, I'm like you; I sympathise greatly with the, the woman that you, you've just spoken about. But but it's 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 a process which is altering your rights relationships with other people, um, and it's a legal process, and and therefore there needs to be some means of assuring that what's happening is what's really happening and not some pretense or some fantasy or some piece of nonsense. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think about it in the context of situations where women are particularly vulnerable, like prisons, you know, it's really serious. The default position has been, uh, it's changed now, the default position, when I say it's changed now, it's changed today and a couple of weeks ago. Uh, default position was that trans women most especially those with the GRC, would be accommodated in the women's estate, whether or not they are convicted sex offenders, rapists, and so on. And as you both know, because of your professional backgrounds, um, most women in prison have got real vulnerabilities. They've generally been the victims of sexual violence or domestic violence from men. Um, and being incarcerated in a space that you can't leave plainly with a male-bodied person, usually with a penis, I mean, you know, usually fully male-bodied, sometimes with a functioning penis, that is, they haven't had sufficient hormonal treatment to mean they, you know, you know what I mean. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, to be incarcerated in that environment with a male-bodied person is, you know, it's, it's frightening. Um, and it's certainly undermining of dignity. And that's changed. As I say, Dominic Raab today announced that um, uh, uh, trans women, fully intact, for want of a better expression, can't be accommodated on the women's estate anymore. And that default position's gone. Scotland shifted it a couple of weeks ago when there was the big outcry about the two rapists in women's prisons. Um, Jess Jones, in fact, uh, and I did a case about this a couple of years ago and didn't win, although we partially won the broader argument we didn't win the case but we're now seeing a shift and again I, I want to emphasize that of course trans people are a vulnerable population in prisons as well so that has to be very carefully managed but the answer to that it seems to me is not to put all trans women whatever the context whatever their physiology into the women's estates well, it's, it's always seemed pretty obvious to me that people with male genitalia should not be in women's prisons. But it's also been equally obvious to me, and obviously to you as well, Karen, because you just said so, that uh, male prisons are not safe places for um, trans women either. So there has to be some other um, solution to this. But Dominic Raab is, is clearly right to, to have done what, he, what, he's, what he's done today. <laughs> Um, we could continue to talk about this particular subject for, for, for another half hour, I'm sure, Karen, but we, Tim and I wanted to, to raise another issue with you, which we've discussed with David Panic and with um, Dinah Rose uh, in previous episodes. And, and like them, you've appeared many, many times in the United Kingdom uh, Supreme Court. There's a bit of chatter at the bar, isn't there, about a, a shift in the court and its in, in, in its thinking and reasoning philosophy, if you like, perhaps a shift someone. I don't know what the best way to put this is: a shift to the right, a shift towards the executive, just a a change since um, Lord Neuberger, um, uh, Brenda Hale, 
left. Do, do you perceive a shift in the attitude of the Supreme Court and the senior judiciary generally, or do you think this is just being uh, imagined, it's just a blip? No, I, th I think it's, there's definitely been a shift. Um, I think it's not easy to say whether that's affected the outcome of cases, certainly yet, partly because I think we have to remind ourselves that some of the cases where Liberal judges might have helped, those Liberal judges were in the minority. So often in the welfare benefits cases, for example, Lady Hale, Lord Kerr were in the minority. So the outcomes were often what we would expect now. But I think in terms of tone, as well as um, approach, we are seeing a real shift, particularly from Lord Reid. I mean, Lord Reid was quite gentle under Lady Hale. I mean, he was, he's always been a conservative judge. There's no doubt about that. But some of the things he said recently, I've thought, oh, I'm not sure that you would have said that in a judgment while Lady Hale was presiding. I don't know. That may be presumptuous of me. But in particular, for example, in the in SC, the welfare benefits case, where he talks about campaign organisations with such hostility. I mean, that was the Child Poverty Action Group case. Well, it was a, an individual litigant, but supported by the Child Poverty Action Group. And you all know there are highly respected NGO working and campaigning in the area of poverty for years, decades. Um, and he was, you know, really uh, dismissive uh, about them and about um, NGOs of campaigning organisations more generally, suggesting that losing the battle, the campaigning battle, ought not to mean that they should be bringing cases in the courts. Well, that's you know, that's the function of the courts. You're challenging law. It presupposes you've lost the campaigning arguments. Uh, so that was very hostile. And it also, I think, needs to concern us so far as interveners is concerned, because under the previous presidents, Newberger and Hale, they were very generous about allowing interventions, taking the view um, that really, in, you know, in the apex court, where you're going to be making decisions that are going to affect huge numbers of people beyond the individual litigants, it's actually helpful to have organisations come along and say, if you do this, that might happen. You may not have thought about that because it's not an issue in this case. And I think we're likely to see a more conservative approach or a more restrictive approach to interveners if that's the approach being taken to campaigning organisations. Uh, I think there is also, I don't know if the words deference, you know, margin, who knows, but uh, we're seeing much, I think, greater scope um, being given a, a less interfering approach so far as government uh, decision making is concerned, a sort of very much more hands off approach, including in the context of legislation, welfare benefits legislation, for example, uh, stating in terms that a greater margin is likely to be afforded Parliament in the context of welfare benefits, an area of dispute that's been back and forward to the European Court for some years, much more generous approach uh, recently from the European Court of Human Rights to individuals. Ken referred to the fact that we've had David Panic and Diana Rose as guests uh, who've commented on, on this. Um, we've also had Baroness Hale, uh, Brenda Hale herself, um, and of course she gave a lecture last year in Canada. Uh, the heading was about the independence of the judiciary, but she herself commented on what she clearly was concerned about in terms of 
um, the change of approach since she stood down in January 2020. So uh, in her lecture, she quoted from the All-Parliamentary Group on Democracy and the Constitution, who'd reviewed Supreme Court decisions in public law since she departed. Uh, and they found no less than seven out of approximately 40 examples in which the Supreme Court had departed from previous House of Lords or Supreme Court authority in favour of a position more in line with government thinking. And she gave a, a, a list of those cases. And she made the point that traditionally, as, as we all know, the court is very slow to depart from its previous decisions. And, and so she thought that was rather unusual. I, I mean, she raised the question of whether it's down to the change in membership of the court. And she pointed out that six of the 11 justices who took part in the prorogation decision had now retired, including four who were thought to be of a mentality more sympathetic to individual human rights and more willing to challenge the executive than others. That's Brenda Hale, uh, who am I to, to suggest anything else? But yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, I mean, well, there has been a huge turnover, as you've said, of judges, and they are—they're they, uh, what we've got now. Uh, well, we've only got one woman. Um, we've got fewer family judges now. Not all family judges are pro progressive, of course, but they will have had experience of dealing with a diverse range of. Uh, families, those with vulnerabilities and so on. We now have, they're almost all commercial or chancery lawyers. Uh, Lord Sales, of course, was a commercial lawyer, but also Treasury Council. Lady Rose uh, also worked for the government legal department. So, so far as there are judges who haven't gone through the mainstream commercial chancery route, they have been principally working very directly. The government side. Um, so, so yeah, there are very real concerns. And as I say, I think we can see not just a shift in approach, and you've identified the observations by Lady Hale, um, but also tone, and also the way the stories are narrated. This is something picked up, mm. I think, by some of the evidence in the all-party parliamentary group that you're referring to. And I think Ken gave evidence to that, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah. uh, but yeah. yes, tone and the way the stories are told. Um, which is important because that's through which the legal problems are explored. I thought the, the judgment of the Special Immigration Appeal Commission a couple of day, days ago in the uh, Begum case, the, the, um, the, the young woman who's in, in the, uh, the, the, the refugee camp in Syria who went over to Iraq as a 15-year-old, I think. And, and, and you saw there uh, Mr. Justice Jay in his judgment really struggling against the very strict parameters put upon him by uh, the earlier decision of the Supreme Court. And it'd be very interesting to see uh, when that case gets back to the Supreme Court, as it no doubt will, what they'll make of it. Uh, Mr. Justice Jay obviously finding eventually that it was lawful to remove her citizenship from her, but, but obviously struggling against those parameters set. And Gareth Pierce made a very interesting speech. Uh, she made some very interesting remarks outside court saying that it was the most extraordinary judgment in which the court seemed to accept most of what uh, Miss Begum's lawyers had said, but nevertheless felt constrained to uphold the lawfulness uh, of the Home Secretary's action precisely because of the way in which the Supreme Court said the court had to judge that question, a very, very narrow way of judging that question, which didn't seem, frankly, to do justice to the case. And that's one of the problems that some lawyers who appear in the Supreme Court regularly are perceiving. There's a very narrow technical approach being adopted, which doesn't 
seem to encourage the doing of justice in individual cases. Absolutely. And I think, in fact, that's a good example of the, the observation I was making a moment ago about the storytelling, about the narratives, which are very important for contextualising legal questions. Of course, in Shamima Begum in the Supreme Court, there was nothing by way of her story, really. It was short, suggested a degree of agency implicitly, which really wasn't there. Whereas in Jay's judgment, and I have to confess to not scrutinising it, you know, carefully, I've only glanced uh, at bits of it. I haven't had the opportunity to, to really read through it thoroughly. But what, what was immediately apparent is that there was a much closer examination of her story. So again, acknowledging that she lacked agency, I think it was something like compelling or persuasive or something of that sort, evidence that she'd been trafficked, groomed, uh, trafficked in, for sexual exploitation yeah, yeah. Uh, and groomed. So a, a much greater focus on the lack of agency, whereas we don't see that in the Supreme Court. Um, and that's a good basis, I hope, for the case moving upwards. But I've got no confidence that the Supreme Court would, would upset that in any way or... Nor have I. Anyway, what he what he said, Karen, was that the 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 evidence before him provided good grounds to believe or grounds to believe that she'd been trafficked for sex. Yeah. This is a fifteen-year-old. Yeah. Um, and yet, nevertheless, he was constrained to find that for the Home Secretary to strip citizenship from this uh, young woman who, at the age of fifteen, had been trafficked for sex was a lawful act. And that, that does seem uh, a little unfortunate, to put it mildly. I mean, she'd been trafficked for sexual exploit, reasons of sexual exploitation. Um, and that means that she was being raped. She was 15. Yeah. She was too young to consent yeah. to the having of sex yeah. with a man. And, you know, it's utterly, utterly extraordinary. Yeah, just to finish up on that, interestingly, um, the uh, reviewer of terrorism legislation, Jonathan Hall, KC, is reported today uh, in the Times uh, as calling for her, Shamima Begum, to be allowed home, pointing out that that's the position taken by key allies, including the US. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, that is quite a surprising intervention by him. It's, 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 a, it's a major scandal that the British state has left these people um, in, in those camps. The Americans have brought their people home. The Dutch have brought their people home. The Cana Everyone's bringing these people home to be dealt with by national justice systems. And it's, it's just demeaning, embarrassing and pathetic that the British state, which uh, has been banging on about sovereignty for some years now, is incapable of regulating its own citizens in this way. It's an embarrassment. And sooner or later, they'll have to come back. Anyway, on that semi-rant, Karen, can I thank you? Um, thank you for joining us. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you. Not at all. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Yes, th thanks very much, Karen. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with Ken MacDonald and me, Tim Owen. If you've enjoyed this programme, follow us so you don't miss out on any future episodes and have a look back at the back catalogue at the previous episodes. If you have really, really enjoyed it, give us a five-star review. That helps other people to find us. And we'll see you soon. Our editor is Billy Lawrence, and our social media advisor is Jess Jones. 